I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corem Podcast. In each episode of the Corem Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Hello and shalom from Jerusalem. We're back for another episode of the Corinth Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We were blown away by your reactions to our first episode and we're really excited to start our next conversation. We are indeed. And if you haven't listened to our first episode, please do go back and give it a listen. But for now, let's jump straight in. We spoke last time to Rabbi Ruven Ziegler about the Rav and Rav Aaron Lechtenstein and things we could learn from them about how to deal with times of crisis. And that got us thinking. Over the past few months, our rabbis and leaders have been called upon to answer questions and address issues that we never could have imagined, whether they were concerning communal life or halachic realities. And unfortunately, we've also seen the loss of some of Judaism's and modern orthodoxy's most prominent leaders, including Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb and Rabbi Dr. Nachum Rabinovich. These two men were considered to be amongst the greatest leaders of our generation. Others have found that they are gaining prominence as they're called upon to address issues of the recent period. But could any of them be referred to as Gadolim? Indeed, does modern orthodoxy subscribe to the idea at all of a Gadol? And so, the question we want to ask is, how does modern orthodoxy address the idea of Gadolim? We have two wonderful guests lined up, so let's get straight to it. Okay, we're delighted to be joined by Professor Chaim Seyman. Uh, Professor Seyman is a scholar of Jewish law, insurance law and private law at Villanova University and is the author of Halacha, the Rabbinic Idea of Law, published by Princeton University Press. Professor Seyman has been the Gross Visiting Professor of Talmudic Law at both Harvard Law School and the University of Pennsylvania Law School, a visiting fellow at Princeton University and a visiting professor at the University of Toronto, Bar-Ilan, Hebrew University and IDC Faculties of Law. Professor Seyman also serves as Dayan on the Benson of America and as an expert witness in insurance law and Jewish law in federal court. With reference to today's topic, Professor Seyman published an article titled The Market for Gadolim, A Tale of Supply and Demand, which you can find on The Lair House. Professor Seyman, great to have you with us today on The Current Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's uh, jump straight in. Uh, obviously, today we're talking about the topic of Gadolim. How would you say that Gadolim function today? So um, the, you know, the, the thing that we call Gadolim today, or sometimes Das Torah, they're probably a little bit interchangeable, uh, is an idea that you know, doesn't show up once, it sort of develops over time. Uh, the idea of a Beitin Haggadol, of course, appears uh, in the Mishnah and the Gemara, and uh, thereafter, in the Middle Ages, you have ideas of certain Din or even certain people who are known in Gedolim and have certain authority, really more in the Choshen Mishpat Dine Mamanot sense, uh, that don't uh, apply to regular people or regular din. A mumche uh, is known in, 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 some in, in the beginning of Shulchan Aruch, it talks about that. Uh, but the thing I think that we're, we're talking about, this sort of social phenomenon of das Torah or gedom, that there are people or persons or maybe a person or a council of people who have some 
mastery over the Jewish corpus, the halachic corpus especially, but I think even the Ashkafic corpus as well. Uh, and that therefore their understandings and intuitions about that, and therefore the decisions they make uh, from those understandings to uh, current questions and events in the world is generally thought to be of relatively newer vintage, the uh, past 100, 150 years or so, and maybe in its current construction, um, maybe 40 or 50 years old. But there's a thing called Zagadolim, who say something, and therefore that is presumptively binding. I find that this tends to be most um, important precisely in areas where the halacha is least clear. The extension of this into political questions, into social questions, into understanding how society changes and what our um, responses that be on the personal level, on the national level, on the political level, on the communal level, um, those things seem to be what we talk about in terms of Gedolim or Das Torah, and also on the personal level in yeshivas. Um, this happens particularly. You know, should I go into this profession? Should I date this girl? Uh, Etc. Uh, that those are, are questions of Das Torah given over to rabbis. Uh, that seems to be uh, new. Maybe the classic example, right, that you'll hear, and obviously one where the Gedolim don't come out well, that the general consensus is the Gedolim were against leaving Europe you'll hear, or the Gedolim were against the Medina or against Zionism. So those sorts of things, um, I think, are what uh, people often invoke when they're, when, they're, when they're discussing this concept, at least in the last, you know, few generations. Right, so that's a sort of paradigm that certainly still exists in certain communities, um, but from a much more modern or centrist point of view, is there such a concept as the Gadol or Gadolim or, uh, you know, do, does that role get filled some other way or is it something that's totally rejected by modern or centrist orthodoxy? Sure, sure. So you're, you're right that, um, at least the way I presented it, this is a term that certainly originates in what today we'd call Haredi orthodoxy. But um, as with many things, what we call modern orthodoxy has been very influenced by the rise and growth and success of Haredi orthodoxy. Movements also go the other way, which would be interesting to talk about, but at least here, I think it's fair to say that it comes from the Haredi world to uh, the more modern orthodox world, and, um, and certainly takes on uh, a lot of those characteristics, at least in part of it. I think that if you went back 50 years ago to the modern orthodoxy of you know, the mid-century, certainly the United States, this idea would have sounded very foreign and strange. Um, but as one gets, you know, closer to our day, the 80s, 90s, etc., more and more of this sort of talk filters in uh, to modern orthodoxy. Obviously, if you're talking about American modern orthodoxy, uh, you would think of Rav Soloveitchik as being the paradigmatic gadol. Something I always find interesting, I went to a more uh, Haredi high school in, in the not early 90s, and Rav Soloveitchik then, um, who was not called the Rav there, uh, but maybe Rabbi Soloveitchik um, <laughs> was the example of someone who was not a gadol. The 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 someone who maybe you know might have had some of the skills required, but the gadolim paskin he was not a gadol. And one of the fascinating things that in the intervening years, and I think you see two things that happened. One, um, he's been much more spoken of as a gadol, both within modern orthodoxy and even in what you might call you know, more left-wing yeshivish circles, if that's a term that makes sense, or precisely in the way right-wing modern orthodoxy and left-wing yeshivish 
circles have sort of melded to, to at least some degree. Uh, I think it's unquestionable that Rav Soloveitchik is considered uh, a guttle in that world uh, today. So there's definitely a sense that over, you know, roughly my lifetime, um, the, the concept of a gadolim has migrated further into modern orthodoxy, but it hasn't migrated fully in its Haredi form. Like everything, it sort of changed and morphed and, 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 and molded uh, to uh, the way modern orthodoxy exists. Also, and we can continue this, is you know, exactly what you call modern orthodoxy, right, is now a fairly broad spectrum of people who are arguably within that camp. And some of the important divisions within those, uh, within those communities, this is what I write about in the piece, uh, relate to the concept of particular gedolim and maybe the concept of gedolim more generally. Right. So, okay, I mean, just to explore that a little bit further, like how would you say that we see that across... Like maybe either looking at some examples, just over the, in that in that spectrum, modern orthodoxy. How do we see sort of that that uh, relationship or the way that we, re- you know, the the gadol is related to? Let's say, how do you see that differentiated? Sure. So I think I think two ways. I think the more to the right of modern orthodoxy you are, what's called today right wing modern orthodoxy, the more comfortable you are with this concept of gadolim generally. And particularly with with your uh, with your gadol, um, depending on on where you are, that might be uh, somebody else, uh, different people. But I, I think in concept, it is is not quite uh, the idea you have in the Haredi world, particularly as it gets further away from halachic matters to more social matters, political matters. It's certainly a an opinion to be respected and thought about, uh, but it doesn't have this final uh, conclusive effect. Uh, as you move to more halachic matters, it, it could be more like that. Uh, as you move sort of to the center and the left, I think a few things change. One, I would say, whereas in the Haredi world, you might say that not, that a gadol is, when a gadol says something or the gadolim say something, it is, it is conclusively right and therefore no longer uh, debatable. I think in modern orthodoxy, it works slightly differently. It says, if a gadol says something, it is now challengeable, but not obviously wrong. In other words, it's yeshal mili smoch. It's a de'a that is huval shulchan melachim. In other words, it's part of the discourse. It's part of the debate. It's a shita, as opposed to some guy saying something, right? So to me, it's always like, who gets to be a shita, and, who gets, and who's like some random person, right? And I think that when, when a gadol says something, it's now a shita, they say, so we thought the Satmers are totally wrong about religious Zionism, but you know what? They have a shita, right? right? If you go like on the other side of the Jewish spectrum, all the way to the, let's say, anti-Zionist left, uh, you would not say they have a shita, we would disagree with. You would say, ah, it's complete. Right? And so like, what's the difference there? There's yeah. a lot of things, right? But part of it is one of those you ascribe to a gadol, well, you have disagreements with very sharp disagreements with, but you can't say like they're coming out of nowhere. Uh, and the other one you can just sort of dismiss as not even being within the normative universe uh, that you need to take, take a hold of. So I think that if we think about modern orthodoxy, of course, it depends where we talk about, but, but that's one of the things that Gedolin do is that they, they give legitimacy to an opinion. I think the difference, as I said, is whether that legitimacy is therefore conclusively binding on everyone always, or simply that, meaning is it preclusive or exclusive, right? That right. it says, at the very least, this is something that, that, that can and should be taken seriously, and, and someone who relies on it is, is not 
outside. And a really easy test is, you know, somebody does something maybe strange or not particularly, you know, not within the normative mainstream, right? Either does something or says something. And you ask them, how do you do? Well, who said you can do that? And you'll say, Rev X. Now, what's the reaction going to be? It'll be, oh, Rev X is it? Okay. Or it's like, Rev X, really? <laughs> so, like, exactly those, like, very, like, those reflexes. So, obviously, you can't run it on one person. But run that 100 times in 100 shows, and you'll get a sense of, like, what the community uh, thinks about and, and exactly how they respond to, you know, so someone has a weird sheet to fill in or cautious or Pesach or whatever it is, and, 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 and everyone looks at them like, why are you doing this? And, and when you say Rev X said, then, then you'll get a sense for who's a gutto and who's not. Now, to me, that's like the test of, of who's a gutto. It's not like some philosophical test. Because I think uh, fundamentally, who is a gutto is a social fact. And, and you, know, you run variations of that test. And you'll figure out who, who the community considers uh, gutto. You know, I've always found it very interesting that um, the, the, the Talmudic standards speak of two things. You know, they talk about a gadol bechokhmah uveminyan, right? So chokhmah, we could say, is some stand-in for, you know, net halachic accomplishments, right? How well you know the shas and poskim, uh, and if you think knowing, you know, the philosophical canon and the Western canon is important, then you could throw those in, in, in as well. But minyan, right, is typically understood, especially in a beitin, every beitin is either 70 or 120 or whatever it is. Minyan is thought to be minyan talmidim. The Gemara itself understands that that's uh, a very important basis. Another thing that I always find interesting is the opening Mishnah in Horios. So on a plain reading of the Mishnah, if you follow the Beitin's um, ruling, you are putter because you can say, I was some, and they turn out to be wrong, uh, you can say I'm some of the, on the Beitin. But the Gemara rereads that and says, no, that's, that's a minority opinion. Uh, that that the that the that the the shita that we paskin like of the chachamim is that the Bezdin's ruling only gets respect if Rov Yisrael did it as well. In other yeah. words, again, you see this idea of the communal of the marriage of the sort of chachma and minyan um, aspects are creating this authority that you know in, in Talmudic times you would talk about a beitin. Today we talk about in terms of. Uh, so looking at both, then what? What do you think came first, the in, in terms of the the more modern approach to Gadolin being, as you were saying before, sort of the role of the Gadol being someone who lends credence to an opinion? You mentioned in your article in the Lairhouse that Arya mentioned in, in the introduction um, that sort of the role of the Gadol, certainly in the modern in the modern sphere, is determined by the market. Um, you know, do, do we want a Gadol, and then if so, who's it going to be? Um, do you think that like the relationship we have with Gadolim in the more modern world is sort of affected, you know, as soon as the Gadol says something that I disagree with, well, then he's no longer a Gadol because I listened to him about one, two, three things, but now number four, I don't like it. So I'll go and I'll go and look for someone else. So no one can sort of ascend to the level of a Gadol in the same way they can in the Haredi world. So did, did our approach come first or? I want to fight the premise of your question a little bit. <laughs> and talk about the Haredi world, which is to say, um, you will see from time to time, and I have one somewhere in my computer, a kol kore of sorts, uh, signed by, you know, eminent Haredi Gdolim mm -hmm. about, uh, one of two things, they're actually related, about expensive weddings mm -hmm. and about um, what today passes for, quote, Jewish music, which is, you know, beats, rock beats with sukkim laid right. over them. 
And they will say that this is usser and this is bad and we need to change it and et cetera, et cetera. And nobody listens, uh, right? You go to any from wedding, it's both, you know, <laughs> families well off, it's very rich and uh, it's very, you know, lavish and, and big. And, uh, and the music is exactly what these gedolim are saying you can't do. Uh, which means to say that there is a code that people have that they know that when the gadol says he can't eat this hashgacha, you can't eat that hashgacha. If you eat that hashgacha, you're certainly not part of that community anymore. But when the gadol says, don't play this music, that's him saying, really in some ideal world, I wish we had different music, right? So like, where does that come from? <laughs> um, you know, if we talk about uh, vaccines, right? So members of the Agudas Moetzis Gedolei Torah are known not to be fans of vaccines. And then many, many, forget about modern people, many, many Aguda members in good standing sort of know that's not something, you know, we could disagree with the Gadol on that. Now, they may frame it as we found another Gadol. But if you try to push what are the actual underpinnings of this, is that when a Gadol, even one recognized, gets too far from where his public is, they're not going to listen. Now, of course, an established Gadol probably has more, it lasts, like the leash is longer, right? In other words, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, so, so, so to kind of press on Alex and your question, I would say that how long your leash is, so to speak, or how elastic it, it is will change based on the community and based on the issue and based on the reputation. But I think that even in the Haredi world, um, you can, and, and my point is I only need a few examples to say, so when everyone's listening, it's in part because they've bought in to listen and not because only the Gadol says, because Haraya, we can find examples where people know. Now, it goes one step further because the Gadol himself knows this and therefore how hard he presses on it is also factored into how he expects the community to react. So it's a reflexive cycle of a sort of authority figure on the, on the top and um, you know, a community at the bottom. And of course, particularly in the Haredi world, the intermediation of the Askanim and these various sort of players who are responsible for managing uh, those interactions. I think in the modern Orthodox world, it, sort of the same thing happens. Um, so which questions get asked to Gedola? Whose opinions are we bound by, right, will, will change. So if we think, you know, uh, in the, in the re recent uh, coronavirus uh, situations, um, you know, a number of questions were asked and, and uh, you know, uh, a number of rabbis, Rav Schechter, Rav Herschel Schechter from YU, I think, uh, chief amongst them, gave answers that I think affirmed, confirmed uh, the community's sense of what ought to be done. I, I add Rav Asher Weiss to this, uh, to this group as well. And they were held out as gedolim uh, of this community. And, and you know, as the community tried to figure out how to, how to manage these things, uh, it did that. On other issues, uh, those opinions are, you know, depending where you are, less sort of understood as, as correct. And therefore I think, uh, play differently. Um, you mentioned before the Rav as an example. Um, I was just wondering, I guess if you look at sort of how people view the Rav today and compared to, as you mentioned, how he was viewed 20, 10, 20, 30 years ago, how would you sort of, ex I mean, I think it's he's the classic example of today, he's sort of attained this status of godalhood, um, and yet across the spectrum, more orthodoxy, people will say, ah, but the Rav, you know, holds, holds this. 
Um, so I do that. But then they'll, other people will say, oh, but the Rav actually holds this and actually give com- you know, completely opposite things because they're reading sort of something the Rav has written different ways. Like, how would you sort of plot that history of how the Rav went from being in his position at his, in his time to sort of where we're at with how the Rav is related to as, you know, if you want to call it a gadol today? So, so I think there's, there's two issues there that are actually a little different. One is sort of the what did the rub say about topic X question, which honestly, and again, I'm not a rub scholar here, but, but you know, I did see some of the Hespedim when he died in, in 1993. When he died, there are already different interpretations of the rub, which is another way of saying when he was alive, there were different interpretations of the rub. So one of the things the rub did and um, I remember, you know, I was young then, and, and I'm learning some Gemara, and like two Talmidim in the Gemara were arguing about what Rav and the Gemara said. I'm like, wait, he was just there. How did they not know? And then I said, oh, now I understand how this happens. Like, here we have people who sat in the Rav Shear for 20, 30 years disagreeing about what he would say uh, about that. So I think that's a little different than the, the kind of scope of people considering McGonnell, which I think has grown since then, but I think right when he passed away. And I find this a very interesting contrast to, uh, you know, Murray Robbie Rav Lichtenstein's that style, who, if you read his, the spadum given when he passed away, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, they're remarkably consistent, sort of no matter who the writer is. Obviously, everyone writes it in their own language and focuses on things, but I found, and I read a lot of uh, them at the time, uh, a remarkable consistency that almost no matter who was writing it, they basically said the same thing and pointed to the same qualities. Whereas when you read the Spadum of the Rav, you can immediately see who's writing it and what, where they fit. So that's obviously some difference. What they projected to their Talmudim caused a variety of interpretations on one side and, and much more consistent set of interpretations on another. Now, the other way you know you're a guttle is that people fight about what you said because it matters, right? So if you want to take it back a thousand years, right? Who, name me a mo, uh, movement in Judaism, from Satmar to Chabad to Reform to Reconstructionist to whatever, that doesn't want to claim the Rambam as their titular. It's fascinating. I think the Rambam is probably the only person, certainly, who like, Everybody thinks that the, not just the Rambam is like being a representative of, of rabbinic Judaism or whatnot, but like the Rambam's unique shitos, right, in the way the Rambam was different from other Rishonim, is exactly Chabad, Brisker <laughs> Lundis, you know, uh, German reform rationalism, Zionism, anti Zionism, Kabbalah, anti you name it, right? He's a god. <laughs> Right, so I think part of what's going on with the rub is like sort of like the rub is established as a guttle, and therefore now everyone wants to show how like what they want is yeah. consistent uh, within that, as right. opposed to someone who you know proving that another rabbi held X may be true, but but not helpful because because a lot. The other the other distinction I'd point to is um, which which I didn't make it in that article, but I found useful is to think about the difference between what we might call a gado and a pose. So let me give you some figures, uh, you know, and, and so let's, let's put in one bucket, though they're very different, we'll put the Rav, we'll put Rav, uh, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, we'll put the Satmar Rebbe, um, and we'll put Ravon and Cutler, okay, if we're talking about like the second half of the 20th century. And then in the other bucket, we'll put Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, and maybe Rav Asher Weiss. So the first category 
all those people are Gedolim, but they're very much tied to a specific substream of orthodoxy, right? Uh, the Rav Wayu, modern orthodoxy, uh, Rebbe, obviously, the Satmar Rebbe, um, you know, Ravarn Cutler, Rav Shach. So there, I think the authority was, was extremely deep, but, but, but somewhat narrow, right? If we think of Rav Moshe, Rav Shlomo Zalman, Rav Usher, they are all actually not tied to a specific substream of ideology. Now, of course, all three of them emerge much more from the Haredi world than from the modern world, right? But, but I think they, probably in all three of them, deliberately did not become leaders or articulants in ideology and therefore have a broader base uh, of support for, for their, you know, the, the, you know, Rav Moshe Feinstein, basically, wherever you are within orthodoxy, right, you cite Nigger's Moshe, doesn't mean we automatically do it, but no, that's, that's, you got to take that seriously, right? So there I would say that, on the other hand, you know, if Rav Moshe had some ideological positions, he would say, okay, we don't, right? So in other words, there's this way, almost this trade-off between depth and breadth, and I think, I think it's probably choices people make, you know, or to some degree they're, they're put on them, but there's, even within Gedolim, there's sort of different models of are you going to lead a substream and kind of articulate its ideology and define its kind of content boundaries, or are you going to be kind of lesser on that, more of a sort of, you know, halachist of a, of a broader community, but maybe have a different, you know, Eliezer maybe that list, yeah. um, and have a different sort of relationship with more people, which may be deep, but not right. quite as deep because the community's entire identity isn't wrapped up in that person in that hashkafa. Yeah. So I think that's, that's an important kind of distinction that really cuts across the modern Haredi divide, uh, but is about sort of how we right. conceptualize and process uh, different, different uh, rabbinic personalities. So then is there, if sort of one of the roles of the Gadol is to give definition to a subset or to a group or, or whatever, and the modern relationship with the Gadol is so vastly different from the Haredi one where that connection does seem to be so much deeper, as in, as you said earlier, you know, the Gadol says it and therefore it is. What does the future for modern orthodoxy look like if, you know, we can chop and change our Gadol, if the Gadol doesn't really have that much authority anyway? You know, it, if our relationship is so, you know, superficial to, to an extent, um, certainly with, with living a dilemma, you know, who, who, like, where, where, where do we go from here? Well, so, so one thing that can happen is that that, that job can be parceled out into different people, right? So let's talk about, uh, Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. So in some ways, no one would call him a gadol in the way we're talking about, you know, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein or the Rav in terms of like his word on sock being definitive. He doesn't even do that. On the other hand, in terms of like sort of defining a communal agenda, I think he's definitely an important voice uh, within within modern orthodoxy, right? So, so one way you could do is say, well, we we can. One thing that I think just does happen is that you kind of build it from from different uh, places. So, you know, depending where you are in modern orthodoxy, some mix of traditional rabbis, traditional poskim, uh, Jewish thinkers, maybe some academics, right? Sort of form and shape uh, a community. Um, to, to flip it back to you, right? In other words, if I look at, at, at the uh, works published by Curran and its affiliated companies, right? I don't see their one dominant uh, voice that's guiding everything. I see they're really bringing together a bunch of different streams and substreams and, and authors and writers and rabbis and thinkers of greater and lesser stature that together define modern orthodoxy. 
So, you know, how necessary is it to have one final address for everything? That may be part of the debate between uh, more Haredi and more modern approaches, right? Does there need to be one um, final thing? You know, if we think halachically, right? So ideally, there's the Beisden Haggadol, right? But for, for basically uh, 2,000 years, we've lived without that and with people emerging and voices emerging. So, you know, now that doesn't mean that nobody knows, right, what the boundaries are. Right, um, but but I think, in other words, you could say, why do you have to have one person who's the address for everything? And you can query whether historically that's ever happened, whether that's you know, even people say it happened, whether it actually happens. Um, and I think you know, at the moment, uh, modern orthodoxy seems to have a bunch of different voices uh, that are playing important roles. Some of them, as I said, not modern orthodox. I think in the world of Sakh or Usher Weiss. Uh, plays an important role in at least some parts of modern orthodox Pesach, though I don't think anyone would ever call him uh, modern orthodox. Um, although, of course, he's accepted precisely because there is something about the way he frames things and presents things and analyzes things and discusses things that is appealing and attractive yeah. and comfortable mm -hmm. and convenient to, a, or, uh, to an audience that doesn't look like him or really live in his world. Yeah. So, you know, I guess what I would ask is, does there need to be one address uh, for everything? I don't think that's been um, been reflective of, of the way the way it's been. I, as I'd ask, and this is, I'm, I'm not a scholar, but like the history of how Rav Cook becomes a gutto, I think would be fascinating too. You know, we talked about the Rav, I know that word a little bit more, but you know, I doubt that in his lifetime, people like called him a gutto. And then yeah. at some point, um, he, he became one. So part of what happens is you respond to, to the currency and the conditions of the, of the discourse in your day uh, to, 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 and then, you know, you can repackage and repurpose. You know, you can ask, how, how long can someone be a guttle once they're no longer living, right? Um, so this I wrote in the article. If you think of a guttle as like a position that you need to have, so, you know, just like every baseball team needs a third baseman, yeah. you know, every, every Hasidus needs a Rebbe. Right. Hopefully, be a you know, few sports terms. Right, um, an all star, maybe even a hall of famer. But if not, it's going to be somebody. Yeah. Um, as opposed to the more, and this was the crux of the article. The more a guttle is sort of a response that the community has to somebody, um, they might be rare. You might have gaps. You might fill in with other things, which I think sort of describes uh, what's going on uh, on today. Right. Yeah. You've mentioned in other, sort of in reference to other, um, I guess, topics within modern orthodoxy, uh, the impact, I guess, on the return and the building of, I guess, the religious Zionist community in Israel. Do you see sort of differences between the way that communities in Israel are relate, you know, rela relate to Gedolim compared to how it is in America? Do you see an impact there on how, you know, as... I guess religious Zionism builds here in Israel, and even I guess even as Olim move from diaspora communities to Israel, have you do you see an impact on the you know on that? That's a really interesting question um, because you know we 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 often and I'm sure you guys at Karen all the time talk about that Tilumi and, and and modern orthodoxy is interchangeable, and in some yeah. ways they are, yeah. and in some ways they're really mm -hmm. not. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and of course both of those things are changing, you know, in real time themselves. Um, so, so, so here's what I say, and I wrote in a different article, as you alluded to. I think if we go back to the 80s, uh, right, in a world where, Rav, again, the Rav's alive, Rav Moshe's alive, uh, the Lubavitcher Rebbe's alive, the Satmar Rebbe's alive, uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky's alive, 
it's hard to imagine a community of American Orthodox Jews, mm -hmm. or non-Orthodox Jews, but let's just stay there, that said, our Gadol is in Israel. Our primary religious leader is in Israel. Now, maybe someone will come up, you know, listener will come up with a smart, you know, counterexample. But I think, <laughs> basically, wherever you were on the Orthodox spectrum, you would say, this is our rabbinic leader. He lives here, probably New York, right? Um, uh, you know, Manhattan or Brooklyn, basically. Uh, I think today, right, um, the first thing you say, I think there's a lot, and by the way, interestingly, this is not dividing the modern Orthodox and Haredi communities. I think yeah. there's a bunch yeah. of people from the far left to the far right of people living in America who will point to a Rav in Israel who is their mm. goal. So, you know, you can go all the way from, you know, on the left, you would say Rav Daniel Sperber is is, is the goal, or at least halachic uh, guiding light of, of, of you know, what you might think of as like liberal or left-wing orthodoxy. And then, you know, certainly people pointing to the, you know, to the Gush, um, certainly when Rav Lichstein was alive and maybe even, you know, now after his passing, uh, Rav Rimon, uh, Rav Asher Weiss, Rav Elazar Malamed, mm. um, and all the way to the Haredi Gedolim in America who are generally, you know, a kafuv to the, to the Gedolim, to, you know, to, uh, in, in Israel. So I think that's a fascinating development. I think you can clearly say that that has changed um, and does point to a kind of kimitsi on Torah ethos that is, um, mm -hmm. that is you, know, you know, across uh, denominational subdivisions uh, as well. Um, I think another difference is sort of the way that the, the power systems work. And there's an American, modern America, um, your, your average balabas will experience the gadol indirectly through his shulrav or her shulrav. In other words, they're going to ask a question. If it's a big question, the shul rabbi may say, I'm going to ask my rebbe, or may not, but do that anyway. Um, and then, you know, the answer is going to flow down through the institution of the shul and things like the OU and the RCA, Right, um, which which obviously puts a lot of power in Rav Shechter and in the Yu Rashi Yeshiva, who kind of flow down through that network. I think those networks in Israel work differently. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm less, but obviously the, the Shul Rav plays a very different role. Yeah. Uh, there's yeah. nothing quite like the OU or the RCA. Um, so on the other hand, more people may have relationships with their Rashi Yeshiva. Um, so, you know, I'm a little less sure, but, but certainly the, the chains of transmission uh, seem to work quite differently uh, in Israel. And it'd be interesting to think about how that, how that impacts it. But, but clearly, I think, if you think globally, uh, the fact that basically almost every American community will today find a rabbi in Israel that they are at least um, you know, willing to say that they are, they are, they are influenced by or cuffed to, in a way that I think was simply not true a uh, generation or two. Yeah, sure. I, I think uh, another big difference is um, actually in America, things are more centralized, certainly in modern orthodoxy and around Yeshiva University. Um, so as we said, through, you know, through, either through YU directly and the fact that so many show rabbis are YU products or through the OU or the RCA, um, if you're going to talk about modern orthodox gedolim, you're going to wind up at the Reed State Midrash uh, pretty quickly. Um, I think in Israel, it's just much more diffuse. There's more yeshivas, there's more competition between them, more substreams within them. Um, so you don't have as homogenous a view of where your possible address of Gedolim are um, in, in the Dati Lumi community in Israel as you do in America. And maybe why there's more 
sort of religious variation within Israeli Datilumi, which I think I think in America you could prettily put it on a um, right. on a on a two dimensional line from right to left. I think in Israel, this is all the, the maps are a whole lot more complicated. It's either three or maybe four dimensional map to, to 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 do this. It doesn't fit so neatly. I think in part because there's more potential centers of if not gugglehood, um, you know what people are perceiving as authentic halachic leadership. And that, that's the other thing, maybe to answer, Alex, your question from before. In other words, if you ask, does the community need something that it feels as authentic halachic leadership? I think the answer to that is yes. Um, if you think, it, does it need a guddle as we're currently constructing it? The answer is maybe not. And precisely the gap between them uh, might, might be the difference. And I think there's, there's reasons why communities want guddle, right? The world's complicated, it's uncertain. We all want to feel we are, not just doing the right thing, but in some sense, in connection with our Masora. And what the Gadol does is, I right. think when it works well, certainly in my orthodoxy, and I think this is clearly experience people had the way they describe it, the Rav, and with Rav Lechensin, and I'm sure with Rav Shechter, is that they feel that they are like, literally getting something, of course, that person is just the person standing there, but through them is filtered something that comes Misenai. Uh, however, you know, that works, but, but that is the experience. Um, and, uh, and I think people long for that, and to some degree, very rightfully and understandably. Part of what we mean by modern orthodoxy is that autonomy is a more important value, that understanding is a more important value. And clearly those play a bigger role in modern orthodoxy than in Haredism. But, but the need to feel, you know, the huayoshev tachas Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, is, is authentic. And when people feel that they form these connections and when you hear people talk about their rebellion and the people they talk to them, that's, you know, whether they use those words or not, that is what they're channeling. And that is not an unimportant part of orthodoxy, of modern orthodoxy and of this conversation. I think, I mean, obviously this is a topic we could talk about um, for, for a long time. Um, but I think we're just, for, for, for today, I think we're gonna uh, wrap up. Um, I mean, I even just, a whole nother podcast of the, the impact of Israeli Alonei Shabbat's parasha sheets on, you know, influences of, you know, who they look to as their gazel. That could be another discussion of another time. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, but I mean, just, I guess it's a, thank you very much for your time. It's been really, uh, really, really interesting. Thank you very um, much. And I uh, hope we can have you again on the current podcast another time uh, to, to talk about more uh, fascinating topics. Thank you. Thank you. We are joined now by Rabbi Natana Wiederblank. Rabbi Wiederblank is a Magid Shir at Yeshiva University where he teaches college and smicha students Tanakh, Gemara, Halacha and Hashkafa at Reitz and the Mazer School of Talmudic Studies. He's also the author of Illuminating Jewish Thought, Explorations of Free Will, The Afterlife and the Messianic Era, published by Magid Books and Reitz Press. He's also the author of Volume 2, Illuminating Jewish Thought, Faith, Philosophy, and Knowledge of God, which is coming soon. Rabbi Wiedemann, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Um, let's start off with uh, a, what I hope is an easy question. Um, could you uh, let us know, uh, in your opinion, um, what is the definition of a God? I don't know if there is a definition Perhaps uh, one could say, you know one when you see one. And the truth is, I think that there are different models of gadolim. But certainly, when I think of a gadol, I think of someone who is first and foremost 
full of Yerushamayim, someone who fears God and is a tzaddik. And of course, in addition, is someone who is a Torah scholar and has tremendous expertise in Torah and Midos and the like. It's someone who doesn't just excel in one area or another, not just someone who's brilliant, perhaps, but someone who is well-rounded and stands out. A gadol literally means someone who's big or great, someone who stands out um, above all those around him. And in that, in that sense, I see him as a gadol. Okay, and so, so to sort of, I guess, take a, a, a next step, uh, what, if we take that definition, um, how, how do you think we would understand that in, I guess, the modern or centrist orthodox sphere? Like, what would a modern orthodox or centrist orthodox gadol be, and how would it be different to any, you know, in other communities? The gadolim that... I know of people who I see as gedolim, who are the leaders of the centrist orthodox community. And these are my rebbe and my teachers, people like Rabbi Schechter and Rabbi Willig and Rabbi Tversky, who are all my teachers in, 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 in YU, I think are certainly are qualified in all those things that I said. They're incredibly wise people, scholarly people, kind people, compassionate people. And I don't see why it's necessarily different than other spheres. I think the difference to some degree is perhaps what people turn to the Godel for and how the Godel responds. In other words, whereas in some communities, certainly perhaps in the more Hasidic community, where the Rebbe is expected to be able to answer all questions, whether they are directly related to the religious sphere or not at all related, things that are totally secular. I think that in the centrist orthodoxy, for the most part, people don't necessarily look to Gedolim for guidance in non-religious matters to the same degree as perhaps in other communities. So that might be one difference. I think that another perhaps difference, and, and this is this is somewhat more complex, and, and I think it depends a little bit on how you define the community, but I think that oftentimes Gedolim, th- there is no equivalent, for example, in the centrist community of the Moetzes Gedolei HaTorah, whereby there's one person or a group of people who are turned to to answer all sorts of questions and set policy and the like. And oftentimes, again, I know in my own personal experience, um, when I have sought the advice and the guidance of Gedolim when I've had questions and turned to them for answers, they didn't always have a straightforward answer. They turned back to me and they said, well, what do you think? And they were very helpful in terms of talking out the matter without always necessarily having a a fixed opinion. Uh, So I think that might be a difference as well. The first difference is that we said is with respect to what types of questions are people turning towards the gadolim. 
And the second is the degree to which the Gadol is setting policy. Um, and it certainly seems like it's a little bit less structured. I remember uh, my wife was telling me that she was speaking to one of her friends and her friend had a particular question, very important question relating to the direction of their life. And they said, well, we just turned to our Das Torah. We called, we called him up. We asked the question and we got the answer and that was it. And, uh, and she was saying, you know, how wonderful it is, how simple it is that we could just ask a question and get, ask a Godel a question and, and get an answer. And that's how we would uh, live our lives. So certainly in my experience, uh, that's never quite happened. I've spoken that there are certainly times when, when my Rebbeim, who, who again, I see as Godel Yisrael, have had very, very uh, clear opinions, but oftentimes, certainly when, when discussing matters with them, it was much more of a conversation and it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't authority from on high telling me this is what you should do or this is what you shouldn't do. So perhaps those are, are two differences, but, but the differences are subtle. I don't know if they're as, as big as some people uh, make them out to be. Now, there's, I mentioned before that part of the question here is how do you define community? And what you were referring to as the centrist community is something that's, that's certainly very, very broad. Mm-hmm. And there are those who would associate themselves as centrist Orthodox Jews or modern Orthodox Jews or the like, who don't feel that there's much of a role for Gedolim and everybody can make their own decisions. And perhaps while everybody would acknowledge that when you have a strictly halachic question, you can get a strictly halachic answer from a posek, but there are those that say that anything beyond strictly halachic questions need not be directed to, to gedolim. My personal view, and certainly I think this is the view of my teachers in YU, is that that is not the case. And the real role of a gadol emerges from his mastery of Torah, which allows him to give us a much broader perspective than someone who just has a more narrow understanding of what Torah has to say about a matter. When I have a question, so I perhaps might uh, know a certain sugya that addresses this question, a certain place in the Talmud or in a Rishon where I could look. I can't come to the question from the perspective of Kol HaTorah Kula because I don't know Kol HaTorah Kula. And the role of a gadol is that a gadol is someone who because they know Kola Torakula and they've been shaped by Kola Torakula and they have Midos Tovos, they are humble and they are not in for, you know, in, it, it, they're, not, they're not motivated by self-interest, but they're people who have really risen above personal self-interest and are looking to try to figure out what does Hashem want from us? What is Ratzon Hashem in this case? So that's where one comes to appreciate really what a gadol is. They have a much broader perspective 
and they will appreciate things that that I don't see. I, I know that in my own experience, there have been times where I had a particular question and I thought a certain type of approach made sense. And I've spoken to Godolim about it. And, and they've oftentimes said, well, you know, your arguments make sense logically, but you have to look at the question more broadly, take a long-term uh, approach. And again, and I, I've always found that uh, the guidance that they've given me has always been uh, correct, that they were able to see things down the road that I didn't, didn't imagine coming. And it was because they're, they're totally steeped in Yerushalayim and they're masters of Torah. And that's, that's where I think the, the role of a Godel really comes out. So Rabbi, you, you uh, mentioned your story before, the, sort of the phrase of, of Das Torah, this, this friend of your wife, you know, had whatever question it was, and she asked her Das Torah. And at least my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that there is, there is the opinion that says, you know, that by having mastery over Torah gives you sort of another level of understanding. Um, but I seem to understand from what you're saying that centrist orthodoxy shies away from uh, the concept of Das Torah, um, but still this idea of asking the Gadol hashkafic questions, philosophical questions, questions about life, not necessarily about halacha, uh, is still something very much within the centrist um, realm. So in what way does the sort of the centrist orthodox idea of a Gadol differ from this idea of, of Das Torah? I don't know the, the degree to which it differs. Again, I, I, I think it's, it, there's a, a continuum to some degree in terms of imposing authority versus respecting individuality and autonomy. I think overall, in the centrist community, there is more allowance for individuality and autonomy, more respect for the possibility of, of people choosing different paths in their service of God. It's a community. One of the beautiful strengths of this centrist community is that it allows for such diversity and it includes so many different types of people who serve God in so many different types of ways. And that openness to diversity is oftentimes emerges from the fact that the gedolim don't insist on one particular method of avodah Hashem, but rather there are there's there they encourage a plurality of, of viewpoints. Now all those viewpoints share the same basic beliefs in terms of Torah and Torah Misenai and the centrality of Avodah Hashem and the Mesorah and the like. So there are basic concepts that are, are accepted by all, but one of the, perhaps one of the ways in which you see the difference between the centrist community versus the more Haredi or Hasidic community is exactly in the fact that the Gedolim do encourage people to 
develop their own perspective, their own method of avodas Hashem, and and as such, there are many many different styles and different types of people, all of whom are are supported by our gedolim. So the gedolim oftentimes don't say, well, you have to do it this way, or you can't, um, you know, do it this way, or this is the only way to do it, or you're out of the tent. Um, rather, again, with obviously there there are limits, but but within those limits, and there there's oftentimes much more diversity. To 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 put it a little differently, um, I remember Rav Schechter once telling me that oftentimes people call him from Israel and ask him certain types of questions, guidance, communal guidance. And he says that uh, he, he really does, tries not to answer those questions because he's aware that different communities need different types of guidance and different types of approaches. And, and he's especially where he is in America is not even aware necessarily of of their style, their flavor of Avodah Hashem, what their needs are and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. And, and therefore, he, uh, he, he tries very hard not to, um, not to answer those questions. Again, I'm sure he's happy to have a conversation, but to answer questions of that sort, so he, he feels like he's not the right person. It should be someone living in those communities, someone who's aware of that. So again, I think I, I don't want to uh, paint Haredi Judaism with broad strokes either. There is a lot of diversity in the right-wing communities and just as there are in the centrist community. Um, but I do think that one difference that, that sometimes emerges is that one reason why they're able to have things like Moetzes, Gedolia, Torah, the like, is because there is the party line and everybody, again, it's not to say that there's no diversity, but they're, they're, the platform is much more unified and the goals are more unified and it's even possible to have universal gadolim answering all the questions so that you could have a gadol living in Eretz Yisrael answering communally related questions for America. Um, whereas, again, what Rav Shechter was saying is that, from his perspective, that's not, that's not correct. A gadol doesn't have the answer to every question for every community. Different communities need different types of approaches and as such, it would be it would be wrong for him to answer questions relating to a community that he's not really a part of. So, I mean, on that point, um, I guess homing in also more on like a, I guess like a like a Lemaisa point. We've seen it in recent weeks. I mean, we've heard about it here from Israel in terms of, I guess, if we're looking at the role of a of a gadol in a community in a time of crisis, um, like from what have you seen? Taking, let's say, Rav Shachter as an example, how have people turned to him during the current period? The sort of the sort of questions that he's facing. How have you seen kind of his role take on a new level over the past couple of months? 
Sure. So first of all, if any, you know, that's your point is excellent. Um, without a doubt, this whole crisis relating to coronavirus has taught us how much we need gedolim. And that's because so many of the questions are questions that require such breadth and depth to answer. It's not like a sif in Shulchan Aruch that you could look towards and solve. These are questions that really require mastery of kol tarkula. And I think that the type of leadership that we've seen in Rav Shechter, Shlita, is, is something that perhaps, I think, for those who knew him, was always there. Uh, those who know Rosh Echter knows that all hours of the day he's getting questions from all over the world, oftentimes real pikuach nefesh, but uh, oftentimes uh, I think people didn't necessarily know what was happening. And the idea that Rosh Echter felt that these are serious questions and Rosh Echter is, uh, if anyone knows him, is incredibly humble. Um, but I think he appreciated that there's no one better to answer the questions than him. Yeah. And therefore, he he took the achrayas to answer the questions. Um, and if you look at the range of questions um, that he answered in the the ones that are published, um, yeah. there have been many others that haven't been published, but the ones that are published from questions of life and death and issues of triage. How do you figure out who should get a ventilator if there are two people? One is already on a ventilator. One is not yet on a ventilator, but is a, has a better chance of survival. Those types of questions to much smaller questions like, what do we do when we go back to show and we have to make up the partios? How should that be done? Right. So, but these are all questions that are new questions. They are variations of these questions have been uh, considered over the centuries, to be sure. But for the most part, these are new questions. And when to answer a new question, you have to have tremendous breadth and depth. And I think that uh, I, I believe that uh, the broader community has perhaps a better appreciation of who our gedolim are in this crisis and in, in seeing the type of leadership that, that he's taken in a more public role. Yeah. Um, th this is a question and, um, and it needed to be answered. Um, and, and if there's no one else to answer it, so then you can't leave it unanswered. And we as a community are, are so fortunate um, that, that we have such gedolim um, yeah. in our midst, people who, who can answer these questions. From what you've been saying, Rabbi oh, Wiedeblank, um, it seems as if one of the defining elements of, of uh, a gadol, of the gadol, whether it be in right-wing orthodoxy, centrist orthodoxy, um, is this idea that the Talmud Chacham, the person who has a mastery of um, of Kol Hatarakula, as well as you know the correct um, midot and humility, and uh, you know the sense of Yerat Shemayim. 
um, that that person is sort of the, the, the latest link in a chain going back to Har Sinai. Um, that they're sort of the connection to Nasara, essentially. Um, and using that sort of uh, position um, are bringing sort of Judaism into the future as well. Um, is that something that sort of resonates? Does that does that make sense in, in what you're saying? That the, the role of the Gadol is is sort of as a leader, sort of, but with one foot in the past and one foot in the future, and sort of bridging that gap. Absolutely, absolutely. the The role of Masora is is certainly something that is so important, and and I'd like to elaborate. We say in the beginning of Pirkei Avos, we begin the Pirkei Avos with the, the Shalshelas HaMasora, the chain of tradition. Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai, Masarua Yoshua, Yoshua Luzakenim. That chain, and if you look actually in the Rambam's introduction to Mishnah Torah, he goes ahead and he writes who the Chachmei HaMasora were from Moshe Rabbeinu all the way Till the the Rambam takes it till the end of Hashima Sashas, till Ravina and Ravashi, and he tells you generation to generation uh, who they were, how we got from Moshe Rabbeinu to Ravina and Ravashi, and other Rishonim continue that Shalshelas Hamasora all the way till their time. I think the Meiri has such a list, and and we could do that uh, to today. So there's no question that. The Shalshela Hamasora is carried on by the Chachme Hamasora, by the Gedolim. And the reason why it's so important is because when it comes to Torah Shah so the transmission of the Torah Shah is very straightforward. After all, it's written. So the continuity of that which is written is simply making sure that the next generation has the same text as the previous generation. And if that is done, so then the Masora has continued. But when it comes to the Torah Shebaal Path, so matters are very different. The Torah Shebaal Path, of course, stems from Sinai as well, but it is not fixed in the same way that the Torah Shebaal is fixed. And it's something that changes and that develops and that each and every generation goes ahead and adds to it. Um, but it's not adding to it out of the blue. It's adding to it based off of what they received. There's a very interesting Yerushalmi. The Yerushalmi says that when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Shamayim, so Hashem showed him all sorts of possibilities different possibilities. And Moshe Rabbeinu complained. He said, why can't the Torah simply be chatucha, simply be clear cut? Why are you telling me possibilities? Tell me what the bottom line is. And Yerushalmi says, ilu nitna Torah chatucha, if the Torah is given in that clear cut fashion, lo haisa regal amida, there would be no leg upon which to stand. And the way the Mepharshim explained that is because new questions arise in each and every generation. And if the Torah was simply a rule book, we wouldn't know how to answer questions. 
that had not previously been addressed. Certainly that's obvious when it comes to tech questions of technology. Person wants to know whether home surveillance cameras are permitted on Shabbos. Is it a violation of Kosev or Mochek? And it's even more obvious in the types of questions that we've been discussing relating to Corona and the like. So because the Torah isn't fixed, the Masorah has to be carefully transmitted in a way that remains authentic to that which was given originally, or and also one that is relevant in each and every generation. So the nature of the oral law is what guarantees the relevance of Torah in all times. There's another interesting Yerushalmi, which perhaps even highlights the idea even more, which is the Yerushalmi says elsewhere, Kol Masha Talmud Vasik Asid Lahoros, or some even have the Girsa, not in the Yerushalmi, but in other texts, Asid Lachadesh, Namra Lamosha Misinai, everything that a seasoned student is going to Paskin or even to be Machadesh to develop was said to Moshe at Sinai, which is, of course, in a sense, an obvious contradiction. How could that be? If it was given to Moshe at Sinai, then it's not a chiddush. And moreover, why is it that the Talmud's chiddush? It should be all about the Mesorah. It should be about the transmission from the Rebbe. The answer is that each and every Talmud must take that which they've received and know how to apply it to the current question. There's a very interesting uh, contradiction that some people note uh, regarding Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer at Horkonos. Rabbi Eliezer said in Sukkah that I never said anything that I didn't hear from my teachers. Everything I said, I heard from my teachers. And yet we have another story. It's quoted in Perkin Rabbi Eliezer and Avos Rabbi Nasan, which describes how Rabbi Eliezer said things that had never been heard before. Lo shaman ozen me'ola. In fact, it's quite a moving story. Rabbi Eliezer's father was Horkonos. He seems to have been a farmer, and Rabbi Eliezer was actually as a, there's another Yushalmi that sounds like as a little child, he was interested in Torah, but he never really learned Torah. Until the age of 22, he never studied Torah, the Yushalmi said, the, the, um, the Medrash says. And one day, Rabbi Eliezer realizes that, you know, Torah is something I have to know. And he went to study Torah under Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And he studied Torah with Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and he grew and he developed. So one day, uh, his brothers were really uh, upset that uh, he had left the farm, and his father decided he was going to disown him or disinherit him. He was going to be Madir Minachasav, make sure that Rabbi Eliezer never got any uh, hana from any of his assets. And so Horkonus travels to Yerushalayim, and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the Gadol Hador, heard that Horkonus was coming, and all the great scholars were surrounding him, and he said, Eliezer, it's your turn. It's your turn to give shir. And Eliezer said, how could I give shir in your presence, the presence of the Rabbi? And so Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai left the room, and Rabbi Lazar ben Horkonus went ahead, and he said these chidushim, chidushim, that no one ever had heard before. Lo shaman ozen Eventually, his father was uh, had so much nachas 
he he changed his plan. He he didn't uh, cut him out of the uh, inheritance, um, and and really appreciated who he became. But the problem is, there's a clear contradiction, right? Which one is it? Does Rabbi Eliezer only say things that he heard from his teachers, or was Rabbi Eliezer someone who developed new ideas, ideas that were never said from Sinai? So the answer is, as we've said, that everything he said truly emerged from Sinai in a true, authentic, and accurate way. And that's the idea of the Mesorah. The idea of the Mesorah is that one generation takes what they've received from their teachers and they apply it to the questions of their generation. They apply it to new issues that arose and they have their own chidushim, but but it's truly rooted in the Torah that they received from their teachers. It's part of that Torah Shabbat that stems from the revelation to Moshe at Sinai. And that's something that requires a lot of A, scholarship, B, humility, C, midos, to make sure that we're not simply imposing our own perspective on the Torah, but we are accurately deciphering that which the Torah teaches us in order to correctly apply it to the questions of our day and age. So that's the idea of the Shalshela Samasora. When we say Moshe Kibbal Tarmasinai, Musarali Yoshua, Yeshua Lizakanim, each and every generation, one generation to the other, it's not simply that the transmission is that what one generation got, they transmitted exactly as they received it to the next generation. No, the Torah Shabbat is not static like the Torah Shabbat However, it is something that when applied correctly is truly rooted in Torah's Moshe Rabbeinu. And that's, that is the idea of, of the Mesorah and, and the Gedolim as the Chachmeh Mesorah are the ones that do that. The reason why we are here today talking about Torah is because our Chachmeh Mesorah throughout their generations have done exactly that. They've, they've, they've carried the Torah from Har Sinai to us and it's our responsibility and to make sure that it continues to the next generation. Um, but specifically, it's the Chachmeh Mesorah that are the ones that are able to do that in the greatest possible way. Wow. Um, I mean, I, I feel like we're just getting going on this, um, but I think we, we do uh, need to be conscious of time and wrap up, but I think we could talk about this for hours. And um, I did want to ask on that, on, on what you said, that point just now in terms of, I think, I mean, I think all of us, thank God, in this conversation have had the zuchut to, to learn um, directly, indirectly, to meet uh, the, the Gadolei Adarva. Um, but what would you know for listeners today um, who want to learn more about or learn more from the Gadolim of today, what would you say is the best way for them to, to do that? So there's nothing that can be compared to having a relationship with someone who is extraordinary. And I know that I am very fortunate to have frequent interactions with, with my teachers. And one would think that, you know, after a while, I would sort of get used to them. And, 
I wouldn't continue to be amazed at their piety and their scholarship and their thoughtfulness and their humility. But the truth is that I, I am. And there's no way that you can get that simply by reading their books or hearing stories about them. The truth is that there is no substitute to a personal relationship. And I find that there's nothing more inspiring than, than that relationship. No, the Mishnah Pirkei Avo says in two places in the first chapter, you have to have for yourself a teacher. And the first place seems to be more about a teacher who gives you guidance in life. That's the statement of Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia. And that actually some of the Mepharshim suggest relate to his own experience. Rabbi Yeshua ben Prachia was the Rebbe, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin of Yeshu. Yeah. Um, there's issues of the uh, when that took place and which Yeshu and who. I don't want to get into that now. It's an issue now. It's an and issue. That's that's right. <laughs> right, but <laughs> but the um, but the 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 crux of that is that he had a student that had not sufficiently fulfilled that Mishnah of Asay Lucharav, and not so much in the question of halacha, but more the question of Hashkafa, perhaps, and 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 life, um, and and we need an asel harav. We need we need guidance um, from a teacher, and and then the the Mishnah says later on in the the parak, it says asel harav is stalik minasafek, and as the Rambam explains in the Perish Hamishnayis, it means a posek because if you don't have a posek, then unless you're unless you're able to paskin on your own, how are you going to know what to do? How do you choose? I could be machmer in every shayla. The Gemara says you'd be like a ksil b'choshacholech. You'd be like someone blind, grappling in the dark, groping in the darkness. You're makel on everything. Just every question that comes up, you follow the lenient opinion. The Gemara says that's rishos, that's wickedness. So there's no way to know what to do without a posek. So we need guidance. Um, we need to all fulfill the Mishnah of Aseluharav and make sure that we have guidance in both our personal lives and in halachic questions. Guidance doesn't mean, like I said at the very beginning, somebody telling you exactly what to do or how to live your life. But guidance is guidance and direction from someone who loves you, who cares you, who knows about you, and who's able to take an outside perspective and see things that you would probably otherwise miss. So I think that getting to know Gedolim is, there's nothing more extraordinary than that. But not everybody is able to necessarily form a relationship between, with, with Gedole Yisrael, but everybody certainly can fulfill the Mishnah of Aseh of finding for themselves a teacher, a mentor, someone who can guide them practically in terms of halacha and also general guidance. And that's something that everyone should do. And 
going back to our earlier conversation, it's important for that person to be local, someone that you can reach, someone who knows you, someone who understands your community. It doesn't always have to be the same person. You could perhaps choose one person as a posek and another person who is more of a mentor or a guide. But you should seek out a person who you respect their piety, their wisdom, someone who you think understands you and cares about you and loves you. And in so doing, you're going to connect yourself with that Shalshalas Hamasora that we've been discussing. And you'll be able to try to figure out what Hashem wants of us. That's after all, all that we want. We want to live lives of Torah and we want to know how Torah should guide our lives. And that's what we need to do. We need to find people to help us. So more important than someone who's perhaps world famous as a God will be Israel, we have to find people who know us and fulfill that mission of in both capacities. And in so doing, we will, we will be able to live lives in which we serve God in the greatest possible way. Amen. Rabbi Wiedemann, thank you so much uh, for giving us your time. I have dozens more questions that I want to ask, and I'm sure Aryeh uh, has has many as well, but we're, we're very conscious of your time. So I think we're going to have to leave it there, um, but we'd love to have you back on the podcast sometime soon if, if you're willing to come back and talk to us. It would be my pleasure. I appreciated the conversation. That's all for this week. Alex, if someone would like to get in touch, how can they do so? Yes, if you'd like to be in touch, uh, we're on all of social media, at Karen Publishers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Or you can email us directly at podcast at corenpub.com. And as always, if you visit www.corenpub.com, you can get 10% off your entire order by entering promo code podcast at checkout. Until next time, ta-ra! Thank you.